We are still over in Genesis chapter 3 today. If you uh, were up on Facebook, you got an idea of what we were getting into. If you didn't look at that, then you may not have any idea at all. But this is an area, if you already read the quote in the bulletin this week, I saw that quote, I like that quote, because <clears throat> there's, a, there's a lot of passages like the one we're going to look at here today. And what we're looking at today is the curse on the woman. How many have ever had questions about the curse of the woman? Nobody? A couple people? How about some questions like, why did God do that to women? Anybody, have, anybody wonder that one? Why did God do that to women? Does God not like women? Why is it that God did that to, to women? What is it that, that this curse involved? And it's, it says right in the beginning there, I will. Why is God cursing his people? And there's a whole lot more questions like that that we're going to get into and uh, come away with some answers on. And uh, I listened to, to some people who teach on this thing. And that's where the quote from the bulletin, that's why I, I like this, this one. When we look at the Bible, when we learn from the Bible, when we teach from the Bible, the Bible is not like any other book. The Bible was written by God. And a way it let a lot of people approach the Bible, the way a lot of people teach the Bible, they teach it as if anybody wrote it. And I think that's an injustice. So, you are going to go on a bit of a workout here today. Because I would, as your pastor, I would prefer that you come out of here with the right idea of what happened and we take a tour through Scripture than to just stay with Genesis chapter 3 and teach it like a lot of people do. So we're going to have some, we're going to go through a whole lot. If you want to get the idea of what God is, is, is thinking, what God is doing, then you've got to look at the Word. If you just look at one verse, you can pull any meaning out of it that you want. And there's a lot of people who pulled some meanings out of this and they have given people the wrong idea about God. We're going to take you through as we go through this, man or, or woman. Don't make any difference. You're going to see some things in the Word of God. Learn some things about your God. Learn how to approach the Word. Learn how to approach questions. And learn some of the things that you can do. Because your God is a whole lot bigger than you think He is. And I bet some of you think He's big. But He's bigger. He's bigger than that. Our God is so awesome. And, and these... these Sometimes we look at these verses, we look at this, this curse on the woman, and we come out with such a minuscule teaching on the thing that you cannot get the idea of who your God is. So we want to show you who this is. Now, last couple of weeks, we looked at the serpent, we looked at the conspiracy in the garden, and uh, we appreciate some of the, the things that that generated from you. I hope you're still thinking on, on some of that. And we have some scriptures on those. I shared those with you. We have a lot more on this. There is a lot of scriptures on this, and the best thing to understand scripture is other scriptures. That's why we're going to take a look at, at these today. So, if you will open up in your Bible, we're going to be, be jumping around. We want to do some review on this as well. But we've uh, talked about the serpent. I appreciate the, the uh, praise reports about not being a serpent, not speaking the wrong kind of words, because, boy, is it easy to get to fall into that, isn't it? We start talking, talking the wrong, wrong persons, 
words. We sure don't want to be doing that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. I just want to read this just to review. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now some people do want to know why was this tree put in there. Anybody want to know that? Why was this tree put in there? Why, why not just leave it out? Because man was created as a free will being, and you cannot be a free will being if you don't have the choice. If the only choice you have is, is one direction, and that's, that's not it. Now, some of you know that, you know, when I like to run, I run in the winter, and it has been since the winter of 1978 that I put on pants to run in the winter. I run in shorts all winter long. That's just what, we had a bet, 1979, winter of 1979, I made a bet with a guy. Uh, he's a running buddy. I finally caught up with him on Facebook. We touched base. He is the guy that I went through the uh, burned-out house with, and we had a fun time uh, chatting on some of these things. And he's not too far away. He's upstate Pennsylvania. One of these days, we might get together again. But I made a bet with him. We said, the first guy who puts on sweatpants loses. There was no money exchange. We, nobody lost. Nobody put them on. And I haven't put them on since. I run through the winter in, the, in, in shorts. It's, just what I, it's not a big deal anymore. It's just you know, something I do. But a bunch of years ago, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that, I decided it really isn't a challenge if I don't have a choice. Because I owned nothing to go out in the winter and run in in long pants. Everything I owned was shorts. So even if I wanted to, I didn't have a choice. So I went out and I ordered some long pants for running. That's all they're for. And they are still in my drawer. Because now I can say, no. I am not going to put those things on. See, now I have a choice. I didn't have a choice before. That is there as a choice. The devil could say, well, they serve you, but they have no choice. They had a choice. And they chose to go a different direction. Anybody ever ask the question, why of all the things that you could uh, affect on women, why was it childbearing? Anybody ever ask that question? If nobody did. I don't have to answer it. I, I got the answer. I'm, I'm okay. I know exactly why. But I can keep it to myself. It's okay. No, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Where do we leave off at? Verse 17. And the Lord, God, the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone, but I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground of the Lord, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked and the man and his wife we're not ashamed. Now, we're not going to get into it here now, but way back when we taught on this stuff from Genesis, I, I mentioned this, and many of you were not here for that. The word in the Hebrew that is used to make the animals, they were made out of dust. 
is the same word that is used when Adam was made out of the dust. Exact same word. When we get to the woman, it is a different word. A better translation. I did not make this up. Somebody taught it to me. I'm going to tell it to you exactly the way they taught it to me. Man was made. But in the Hebrew, the woman was built. And we still use that term today. Yeah, that's how they taught it to me. And I have never forgotten it from that. It is a different word. The woman was built from now. Everybody thinks it's a rib. It's not a rib. The actual Hebrew there is very confusing. It is not a rib. It is actually a part of the man. How many have ever heard that the reason Eve was created was because man was lonely? Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, that is false teaching. The man was not lonely. The man was created in the image of God. Remember we went over that verse? Male and female, he created him. I'm sorry. They were, when Adam was created, he was male and female. Both together. When he made Eve, he took the female out of the man and made, he took all the female parts out of the man. Now, the reason that's important is this. Adam was created in the image of God. God is not male. God is male and female. All parts can part together. We know the things of the, the physiology about man. Man, we use the left side of our brain. We use one side. You know, we're, we're compartmentalized. We are made that way. A man can go to work having a fight with his wife and not think about it. Isn't that right, guys? We can go to work. We cannot think about it. We are, com- we are in this compartment. When we leave that compartment, we may enter back into that other one. But the woman's not that way. The woman is in all compartments at all times. The example is the house. You know, the man goes into the living room. He's in the living room. He's not in the kitchen. The woman goes in the kitchen. She's still in the living room, the bedroom, the bathroom, the downstairs, the upstairs. She's all over the place. She can exist in all rooms. When the, when the woman comes up to the man, what are you thinking? The man says nothing. He is right. Because every single man has a nothing room in which we go in and we do nothing. Men are very content doing nothing. We like doing nothing. kind of recharges us. But we hate that question. Wives, if you want to get on the husband's nerves, ask him, what are you thinking? We hate that question. Because generally we're not thinking anything, but we think we have to come up with an answer. (laughs) So we come up with an answer and it wasn't the right one. So you get mad at us for thinking something, saying we thought something we weren't thinking about. But we came up with an answer to try and make you happy. And you got mad at us because you're trying to make you happy. Don't ask that question. <laughs> if you're not helping the husband out, you're not helping yourself out. It's not something that you need to do. It's not important what he's thinking. If you want to be thinking, you've been watching TV, my wife will tell me my thoughts are all over the place. I can't sleep. I'm thinking, I have never had that problem. Never. I go to bed, I stop thinking. That's it. I don't think anymore. If God wants to have me meditate on something from Scripture, He can wake me up and He can have me think on it. I will think on it for a few minutes, write it down, go back to sleep. I get home, I get home on Wednesday nights, usually around 10 o'clock. You know, it's a pretty active day. Everything's been going on. I could be asleep in 15 minutes. No trouble at all. I have to try and work it to try and stay awake to interact with my wife for a little bit after I get home because I've been gone all day. But I can, I can do that. Most men can. There's nothing wrong with this woman. 
That's, that's the way men were made. That's, that's how we were. Men we, men, we don't ask, we do not ask the question, what are you thinking? Because we don't want to know. We don't. Because if we ask you, then all sorts of stuff comes out. And because you're thinking about all these things. <laughs> and that's just not something that we want to, it's not that we don't care. It's just we're not, no, we don't know if we're prepared for all that just yet. But anyway, man was not alone. He had both the male chamber and the female chamber in together. I'm not saying he had male and female parts. I'm not trying to tell you that. I'm not trying to say he was some kind of a freak. I'm saying he was able to be that person who could be in all rooms at the same time and still compartmentalize. That's just one aspect of it. He was able to do that. What God did was he took that chamber out, called it female, and put it into a new body. Now he could be alone. Up till then he couldn't be alone. Man was not, Eve was not created for man because he was alone. She was created to be the helpmate. Now we spent time on that helpmate, what that is, and we saw the funny side of that whole thing, you know, the, uh, the, the wife on the husband. Don't you eat that? Don't you do that? Because uh, she's there to guard him, help be part of that guard. And uh, we saw here in this passage, as soon as we talk about the, the tree and not eating the tree, he needs a helpmate. And we talk right about that right away. But let's go over here. And I want to uh, read the whole context of it. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Hasn't God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the trees of the fruit of the garden, uh, fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. We talked about the different places in the field of the garden. We did that a couple of weeks ago. Not going to get into it all now. Otherwise, I will never get finished all we want to show you here. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did they think was going to happen? We have the tree of life. What happens when you eat of the tree of life? You live. So what happens when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You have the knowledge of good and evil. It's not hard. Now, people want to portray this as the apple tree. I will guarantee you, when we get to heaven, we will know for sure it is not the apple tree. Because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was removed. Whatever tree we have down on here in the earth, it is not the tree of life and it is not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't have them. So we don't know what it is. You can go out there and eat apples all you want to. You're not hurting yourself. We talked about the, the death. Death was not physical. In fact, it took almost a thousand years for this death to catch up with them because they were not made to die. God did not make them to die. Even when their spirit was declared to be dead because they sinned, because they went this way. We talked about death, separation, all that. I think that was last week. Even when that occurred, their bodies took nearly a thousand years to catch up with that death. That's because God did not make them to die. Now, they also had the firmament, which protected them from the UV rays. Once that firmament was removed at the flood, the length of, of life greatly decreased. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. Anybody ever heard 
of the sins that are talked about in the, that John writes down? The lust of the eyes? Yeah, it's, that's your list right there. It's right there. She saw with her eyes. So a woman saw the tree was good for food. This is a, it's pleasant to the eyes. A tree desirable to make one, one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So much is in these verses. You can just park it here for a long time. They sewed fig leaves together. Fig leaves will not last. Self-righteousness, the things we do to make ourselves presentable to God, will not last. They have no lasting power. This is what they did. They tried to clothe themselves. Your righteousness is as filthy rags, the Word of God says. He came out and he gave them an animal skin. I heard somebody teaching. I was listening to somebody this week. And they said, uh, you will surely die. When he says you will surely die, they said, well, they didn't even know what death was. I thought, what kind of a preacher are you? How can God communicate with people and tell them you will surely die if they don't know what it is? What good would it do if God were to talk to you about things and, and he uses phrases and terminologies that you don't know? Would that be a good God? No, you would have a conversation with somebody. If they say something that you don't understand the phrase, what, you, what do you say? What does that mean? What is that? They knew what death was, but you see, they're under the false impression that there was no death during the Garden of Eden. Now, we showed you some of the things that I don't believe that that's true. I'm, I'm sure they have seen things die at this point. And when God says you will surely die, they had they knew what death was. They had not died, but they knew what death was. Otherwise, how can God tell them, here's the penalty, if they don't know what it is? Anyway, I heard him teaching on that. I think, you are a better teacher than that. I know he is. I know the person who was teaching it. They are a better teacher than that. I don't understand why they went that, went that way. But anyway... Just want to review those verses because we will go back to, to see some of those things. Genesis chapter, let's, uh, let's stay in, in Genesis 3 and let's go over to verse 16. We looked at the serpent. We told you before, the serpent more than likely is not present when he declares this to him. The assumptions people make when they get into the word of God, they assume that everyone is together. First off, we know that after they sinned, they went and hid themselves. Would you hide yourself with a serpent after the serpent just led you into, into uh, sin? Would you, would you hide with the serpent? No, the serpent went off in another direction. I told you my feeling of this is, is that the serpent sowed the, the seed thought in her head while she was alone. She went away and thought about this for a while. When she and Adam came by the tree... They may have had a little bit of a discussion. Maybe they didn't. But she reached for it, saw that it was pleasant, all that sort of stuff. She's thinking about these words that were spoken to her. And then she took it. I believe that when she took that fruit, it was just Adam and her. That's I can't prove that from the word, but I believe that's how it was. But when they are before God, there is no serpent there. But God still says to the serpent. And actually he said it to the entire species. The reason that is so is because God does not need to be present for His words to work. Go over to the New Testament. The centurion. You do not need to come to my house. All you need to do is 
speak the word. Because I say to this one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, then he comes. That's one example. I could give you ten more right off the top of my head. Not even studying hard. You can probably come up with about ten yourself. He does not need to be present. Just because he says to the serpent doesn't mean the serpent is there. There's a bunch of other places that you can show this same, same concept, but that's not what we're after here today. So he says to the serpent, more than likely the serpent is not there. That's probably why he didn't ask the serpent anything. The serpent's not there. But the woman is there. And so she has that explanation that she, that she throws out there. And we'll get into some more of that later on. I really want to just take a look at the, the curse that is pronounced on the woman. We'll look into all the other things that had gone on there down the road here. To the woman, he said, what's her name? What's her name? How do you know that? You know, as far as we know in Scripture, she is not named until after the fall. She is always called the woman. Adam calls her the woman. God calls her the woman. Isn't that interesting? doesn't seem like she has a name until after the fall and they get out of the garden. To the woman. He doesn't say to Eve. He says to the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Now we're taking this a little bit at a time. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. How you approach this verse will determine what you see in it. How many have ever heard of the doctor, uh, Calvinism? How many have ever heard of Calvinism? Anybody ever heard that? Calvinistic view. Calvin, there's a Calvinistic view. There's an Arminian view. How many are saying right now, I don't care? <laughs> you actually do. You just don't know. Calvinistic viewpoint. They have one way. Arminian looks at almost the entire other way. I was raised in a Baptist church. Baptist, if you were raised in a Baptist church, if you spent time in a Baptist church, raise your hand. You have, you have been subjected to Calvinistic teaching. You may not know it, but they may not call it that way. We went from a Baptist church to a Wesleyan church. A Wesleyan church is Arminian. Now they have an Arminian view on, on things. I'm sure you're saying, I don't care. What does this have anything to do with me? It, uh, it does. I got some blanks here for you. This is why it, it matters. Because there are two ways to look at this curse. Two ways, one is right, one is wrong. But there are two ways to look at this curse. The way you look at this curse will shape the way that you look at the Bible, will shape the way that you look at your God, and will shape the way you look at how things happen to you. Let's read it over again. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Now, if this was in Greek and I could go to the Septuagint, I could pull the Greek on that, but that's a, that's a copy. That's an interpret, that's not the direct, uh, the direct, uh, manuscript. This is in Hebrew. Hebrew is a different language. I've told you before, I don't like Hebrew. I like Greek. This is a Hebrew language. But I have sources and I have the ability to find some of these things out. And I do know this. I will is not in the text. It is inferred. It is inferred by how you see the rest of the things that are going on. So here's the blanks I want you to fill in. Is the curse pronounced or announced by God? That shapes everything. That shapes how you look at God. That shapes how you look at this. 
is the curse pronounced or unannounced? Now, I mean it this way. If it is pronounced, then God has pronounced a curse upon them. And everything that you're reading here is what God has said, this shall be upon the woman. If it is unannounced, then God had nothing to do with the curse. He is just informing them of what is in store. Those are the two ways to look at it. If you are Calvinistic, you saw the first one. You see this as pronounced because God is behind everything. God is in control. Everything happens because God wills it. If you say a prayer, doesn't matter what prayer it is, if it be your will. That's Calvinistic thinking. God's grace is irresistible and God makes the choices. That's the Calvinistic view. If God poured out His grace to you, you don't have a choice. You are getting saved. Because God's grace has been poured out and it is irresistible. You will get saved. You may not like it. You may not want it. But you are going to get saved. Because God makes all the choices here. That is the Calvinistic viewpoint. The Arminian viewpoint that not everything that happens is God's will. There are some things that happen that are outside of God's will. God's grace can be resisted and we make the choices. Now, that's a really short summary. I could get into a whole lot longer summary about what this thing is and the rest of it doesn't matter, make a whole lot of difference. I just want you to see there's two ways of looking at this. Is God behind everything in your life or is He not? Because if you see God as behind everything in your life, it will change how you approach it. Well, God must want me to go through this. Well, God must will this for me for some reason. You know how the Word says. The Word says He won't give me anything more than I can handle. I remember I heard that verse. How many have heard preachers preaching that verse and came out there, oh, I'm so glad He preached. I guess if God has given me this, then I can handle it. That is hogwash. That is garbage. That is wrong teaching. That is not only teaching an error. That is teaching that will put people in the bondage. That is teaching that will get people to have a wrong viewpoint of God. Because if that was true, I can point out people in the Word of God who had more than they can handle. The reason they had more they can handle is because of the choices they made. They made a wrong choice. God said, don't go that way. And they went that way. And they suffered the results. You can get involved in a situation in life that is more than you can handle and make life really difficult for you. And God is saying, I didn't want that for you. I tried to lead you away from that. I tried to get you out of that. But you wouldn't listen. Ever had that with your kids? Have you ever seen your kids go in a direction you say, oh, don't go in that direction? That is a wrong direction. If you go down that way, it's not going to end well. And they go down that way anyway. Was it your will? No. You tried to steer them out of it. But they have their own. They're old enough. They can make their own decisions. And they, they paid the price for it. They got themselves into debt. They got themselves into a job that's not going to help them out. But you didn't will that for them. See, don't change your view on God. If you think God put you in this situation to teach you a lesson, if you think God put this on you, then you're going to get mad at God even though you won't say it. You'll come to church and you'll worship God and you'll put your hands up and you'll pray and you'll read the Bible. But inside you're saying, God, I am mad with you because I don't think I deserve this. These things will change your viewpoint on God. We just don't need to put all those big terminologies on it, Calvinist and Arminian and so forth. All right, I'm going to show you some verses of Scripture because my opinion on this matters nothing. 
Your opinion doesn't matter either. Calvin's opinion doesn't make any difference either. Our opinions don't matter. What matters is what's in the Word. I can prove to you from the Word the viewpoint I have. I can prove it to you. I don't, I'm, when I get finished, you're not going to have any question. You're going to know this is the way that it is. So let's spend some time and take a look at it. If I don't prove it to you, you can come tell me about it later on. And tell me what parts aren't, aren't right, that you don't quite get the understanding of, and I'll, I'll go back and work on it. I'll help you out. But the viewpoint you have of God will change how you understand the world around you, the Word of God that He has given to you, the choices that you have available to you, and the ability that you have to alter those situations. Now, would God curse the serpent? Yes, because the serpent got involved. As I see it, he got involved into a conspiracy with the devil. The devil said, I'm going to win this dominion. I can give it to whomever I wish, and I will give this part of the dominion to you if you will go and do this for me. serpent did it. God cursed the serpent, the entire species, because of what one did so that the rest of the species couldn't get into that deal. We spent time on that before. Not going to spend time on that again. But I ask this question. Why would God curse the woman? Why would God do it? Well, maybe he just doesn't like women. He created Adam first. Maybe he liked men better. Well, in James chapter 3, verse 6 through 12, that's not in your outline. You can write it in there if you want to. The tongue is a fire, a world world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by man. Mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God the Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. If James is teaching us that the same mouth should not have a curse and a blessing, then should God have a mouth that would both bless and curse? Should God have that? Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or the grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. So, If our God's going to write this down to us, He's going to be consistent. He is either going to speak out blessings or He's going to speak out curses. Now, going back to to this verse here. To the woman, He said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in conceiving. I will greatly multiply. Now, I want you to see this first off. God first put a blessing on her. He put a blessing on her And he put a blessing on him. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 22, and we're going to read 26 and 28. Genesis chapter 1, 22. We're going to read also verses 26 through 28. And 22, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply in the earth. That's what he spoke to the animals. That word multiply is the exact same word we have in Genesis chapter 3. He talked about multiplying the the pain. Verse 26, look at this. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he, when he separated them, the male and female parts were, were separate. The male parts were in the, the man's body. The female was in the woman's body. Then God blessed them. What did God do? He blessed them. And God said, now watch this. Look at this. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the blessing he put on. We're going to have to come back. We're not getting on the man just yet. Man is probably next week. I don't know. You never can tell. <laughs> you let me alone studying for a little while. I come up with all sorts of stuff and... and um, we might get into some more. But anyway, look at it here. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply. If God in chapter 1 of Genesis is blessing them both to be fruitful and multiply, why in chapter 3 does he speak a curse upon her in the multiplication area? Does God want her to be blessed? Or does God want her to be cursed? Can you see where that would be a bit of a problem with James? Is he not speaking out blessing and cursing? All right, that's not that. That's just the, that's just the tip here. We got more to get into. Now, this word for multiplying is used when the when the floodwaters were increasing, and it talked also about when God multiplied signs in the on Egypt. Ex, Exodus chapter one. I don't think I put this in your outline. Maybe I did. If I did, you might want to write it down because you might want to go back there and see this one. Exodus chapter one, seven through twelve. That's where we're going to go. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Does that sound like they're being blessed in the multiplication in the childbearing area? Does it sound like they are being blessed? It does sound that way to me. And the land was filled with them. They were fruitful and they increased abundantly. What was the promise that he gave to Abraham? This is after the curse. Your descendants will be multiplied. If you could count the stars in the sky, if you could count the sands on the beach, you could count your descendants. Does that sound like he's still blessing them? Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said, Joseph, of course, was the person who brought Israel, uh, Egypt so much uh, good things. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Oh, can you see what's in that verse? The children of Israel are more and mightier than we. They came into the land of Goshen as one family. Twelve sons. They had wives. They had kids. Into an entire nation that ruled the world. And in the years that it took for the people who knew Joseph to die, they had multiplied so exceedingly that the king, Pharaoh, says, 
Look, the people, the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Now, if you look at that, it would seem to me that the children of God are multiplying more than the children that are not of God. Would you agree with that? Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Pithom, Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Now, I say this to you again. If the Lord God cursed Eve, why are the children of God multiplying at such a higher rate than the children that are not of God? Why is that? So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the burstals, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. He is trying to secretly kill off the male children because they're the ones they're afraid of. They're afraid of a military. Uh, and it's the men that go to war. They are afraid of the, of the men. That's wipe out some of the men. So when you go in there and be a midwife, they don't know all the things that are going on strangle them, do whatever you got to do, and then just tell them they were born dead. And we can do this all under the all under the uh, cover of darkness, so to speak, so no one knows. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Now, you would think if there was a curse on Eve and that God put it on Eve, you got somebody who wants to exercise that curse, that they would be they would be prosperous in their in their journey. But they feared God and they wouldn't do it. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives, look at this. If you were going to, even if you were going to tell a lie, there has to be some bit of truth to the lie in order for the lie to be believable. Isn't it? Isn't that right? Got to be something. You may exaggerate a little bit, but in order for it to be believable, there has to be at least a little bit of truth buried in there somewhere. Look at what they say. And the midwife said to Pharaoh, verse 19, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Huh. For they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Sounds like the Hebrew women are having less trouble with the birth of the kids than the Egyptian women. Am I reading into that? Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God and that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. So now we're not even going to try and cover it up. Just get all those male babies and throw them in there. But Pharaoh had to know 
the Hebrew women are different in order for this lie to stick. Now, there's two ways they could have done this. They could have just, you know what, it's the, the Hebrew women, we just need to, they just went into labor. If we just wait 15, 20 minutes, it'll be all done by the time we get there. It's not like the Egyptian. The Egyptian, you could, you could be a couple hours late and they're still giving birth. These Hebrew women, they, they, they give birth fast. Hmm. It would seem like they're not under as much of a curse as the Egyptians. Isn't that right? Now, I put this in your outline. You can fill this out if you want to. If the curse is something God does to man, then why are his people overcoming the curse more than the Egyptians? If God did this to man, wouldn't it stand to reason that his people would either come under a greater curse because they're his people, or at least it would be even? Why is it slanted that God's people are not affected by the curse as much as the uh, the people of the world, the heathens. Now, God is the one who said, be fruitful and multiply. If God wants, to do, wants them to be fruitful and multiply, why is God going to come against the very thing he said to do? Now, the Egyptians, they enslaved Israel because they were afraid of them. But that fear turned to anger and a despising attitude once the threat was removed and the Egyptians felt safe. Once they put them in slavehood, they felt safer. They're still, the numbers got bigger and they became unsafe again. Now we've got to start killing off some of these boys until they could feel safe. When Moses comes with the plagues from God, they looked for that safe feeling each time a plague came. Each time a plague came, that plague came and removed that safe feeling that they had. That's why they had their own magicians try and do the same things because if our guys can do it, then we feel more safe. They're trying to get that, that safe feeling. I, I, if you're up on Facebook, I hint, hinted you to this. How many have relatives that you're praying for? That you want to see saved? Mm-hmm. Yep. A whole lot of people that make prayers for the relatives to be saved work against God to do it. Because the thing that turned the Egyptians over to God, the thing that caused people from the Egyptian camp to migrate over to the Hebrew camp is simply because they didn't feel safe. As long as you keep stepping in to that relatives, to that friend, to whatever it is, as long as you keep stepping in their life and fixing their problems, you are in the way of God reaching them. Because you keep making them feel safe, or at least safer than they were. And as long as I have aunt, uncle, mom, dad, whatever, as long as I got them and I can go to them, I can get out of whatever it is I'm in. The reason that they're having financial problems, the reason that they're having bad people in their life, the reason that they're going in the wrong direction is because they are making bad choices. Those bad choices take them away from the area of safety into the area of danger. Following after God would bring them away from danger into the area of safety. You see them going off into the area of danger. What's your instinctive mood? Oh, man, your electric got cut off. Let me help you out. I'll pay it off. Oh, man, this got done. Oh, let me help you out. You are removing that thing of danger. They have no reason to turn back to God. 
because they feel just fine going the way things are. You want to pray for those people to get saved, you better make sure that you don't interfere with what's happening. It is not that God comes against them and God takes their job away or God makes them do the bad choice. It's not that at all. It's that when you get away from God, God is basically announcing this is what's going to happen. He is not saying, I will do this to you. He is basically saying, folks, this is what's going to happen now. I didn't want this to happen to you. But this is what's going to happen now. And the whole thing with pregnancy and all that is, it makes it tough. And has anybody ever been here who've been here for the birth of an animal? Anybody been around for a birth of, how many people have been around for a birth of an animal? A couple of people. No, I have. We bred German shepherds. And so, um, I was the only one that our shepherds would allow in the room when she was going through this. She'd growl and, and everybody else, but I could sit right there. We had a pool. We put them in a little kitty pool. And I'd sit right in there and I'd help the whole process out. I'd cut the cord. I'd do all that sort of stuff. I could handle them. I could do anything at all. And uh, they were fine. But I was also the master. Uh, I, was, I was bigger than they were. I was tougher than they were. And I'd put them through the wall if they didn't listen to me. And so they knew I was the top dog. I didn't hurt them. But you, have to, you can't treat dogs the way you do people. They're dogs. They, you have to get into that. Anyway, that's, that's a whole other thing. But I watched them give, I watched our German shepherds give birth. Piece of cake. Couldn't even tell that there was any pain involved at all. Just, you know, laying there and then all of a sudden, boop, there it comes. That was it. We uh, gave birth to, I think it was, it was either four or five litters, seven each. And I was there for each one. No problem with anyone. But uh, that's not how it is for people, is it? Doesn't quite go that way. Well, anyway, make sure you don't get in the way. You you can check out with God. God, should I help out? Should I step in? Should I do something? But you got to make sure you listen to God, because God is not making them lose their job or making these bad things happen in their life. But they're moving away from God, and these things are happening. And God says to Israel, "When you leave me, here's the five stages you're going to go through. When you get tired, come back to me, and I'll help you out." You got to let that same thing go on with your with your relatives. Let them go through those stages. If you are not familiar with the five stages that God said the children of Israel will go through, the five stages of judgment, uh, let me know. I'll help you out with that. I know we taught it back before. Let's look at this again. To the woman he said, I will. No, I think you just dropped that out. He's just saying, greatly multiplied will your sorrow and your conception be. Now this word here for sorrow... Basically, pain, labor, hardship, sorrow, toil. It's the same word that's used in the next uh, pronouncement from God on Adam. Then to Adam. Notice again, to the woman. Here we go, to Adam. He said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, not even Eve yet, it is your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat it. Eat of it all the days of your life. In toil. That word there for toil is the same word here for sorrow. Most of the time that you're going to see this word in the Bible is translated toil, labor, things like that. I'm going to read this to you from... um, I'm going to follow this word out here just a little bit. In Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. And he called his name Noah. 
saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands. That word toil is the same word that's translated sorrows for Eve and toil for, for Adam because of the ground which the Lord God has cursed. Now that we bring that word and the cursing of the ground right together. In the New Living Translation, in chapter 3, verse 16, about the woman. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. It's not sorrow. It's pain. It's turmoil. It's toil. It's labor. The ESV says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. The CSB, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. The New American Standard Bible. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall deliver children. The Legacy Standard Bible. I will greatly multiply your pain in conception. In pain, you will bear children. So this pain is is, uh, discussed here. It doesn't come across that way if you have the King James, New King James. The NET. I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain, you will give birth to children. Now, again, the I will, they they all put that in there. But it is inferred. The word conception is used three times in the Word of God. The first time is in Ruth chapter <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. It's talking about the pregnancy part, but this is more at the beginning. Hosea 9:11. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Now there's the order of things backwards. Birth, pregnancy, conception. This word conception is the same word we have that we're looking at in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. So it's talking about there the process of the childbearing, but we're looking at from the beginning until the end. From the beginning, from conception until the end, there will be pain, there will be toil. And how many, all, how many women will attest to the fact that from the beginning, there's, there's uh, toil... Now, as a parent, would you send that kind of pain on somebody? I, I don't think that you would. You wouldn't deliberately do that. We've got to get here to the end. Because when you see the end of this thing, you see where it goes, you'll find that, oh, that's why God put this in here. We haven't got to that moment yet. But you're going to get to a place where you say, that's why God put this in here. Now I'm understanding it. We, now, we're looking at this. I, I don't believe that God sent the pain... I believe that God announced the pain. That the pain is coming because of sin. Can you think of anything else in your life that has that sin has had a negative effect on? Absolutely. Let's take a look at a couple. Righteousness. We were righteous. That righteousness was removed and it was taken away by sin. But how do we get to be righteous? Do we get to be righteous by taking authority over sin in our life? Now, you can get up there and preach on that for a little while and you'll get a bunch of amens. But you don't become righteous by taking authority over sin in your life. You become righteous by receiving the work that is done by Jesus. That's how we become righteous. But you got people out there, they want to take authority over sin. No, it's your decisions. You got to believe the, the word of God. You got to trust him. Have a forgiveness. Can you take authority over unforgiveness in your life? I take authority over that unforgiving attitude. Self, you will not. No. How do you do it? By deciding 
to forgive by obeying, by seeing that God gave us the example of, of forgiving and we follow in that example. How about peace? Can we take authority over worry? I know people that do. But what's the Word of God say? Does the Word of God say take authority over worry in your life? It says do not worry. Do not fear. Do not be anxious about anything. When we do that, peace rules in our heart. You can take all the authority that you want to. Sin has an effect on your peace. Peace has been given to you by God. But sin will have an effect upon that peace. You've got to decide not to sin, not to follow in the way of sin. How about faithfulness? I take authority in my life. I will be faithful. No, you just got to make the decision to stop being unfaithful, to stop being distracted, to stop going in another direction. How about love? Are we supposed to walk in love? Are we not commanded to walk in love? We know that we love Him by keeping His commandments. So do I walk in love or just take authority over all the things that are not love? I take authority over hate in my life. I know there's people out there that will do it, but that's not what we're taught in the Word of God. Turn over to John chapter 15, verse 9 through 11. I'm going to read this. Because there's two aspects here. One is love and another is joy. How many like to have joy in your life? Does sin come against joy? Sure it does. Verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, not take authority, keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. It's a decision. It's not an authority thing. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. If you do these things that are written, your joy will may be full. You don't take authority. I command joy to come into my life now. It's not how it's done. That's not the direction we go. Some people, they'll, they'll get up and they'll preach a message and they'll get everybody say, saying, Amen, hallelujah. Women, take authority over that in your life. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand at all. But how many have ever heard a message like that and the first pregnancy, second pregnancy, you decided to do it? I'm going to take authority over pain in my life and I'm not going to have that go on. Well, keep that thought. Hang on. Now, I ask this question. This, the key to understanding is asking the right questions. you got to ask the right questions. So I'm always asking questions. I want to ask the right question. Here's the question I would ask. Would God spare himself? Would God spare himself from this curse? Well, that's a ridiculous question. Jesus was a man. Hmm. Does the pain in childbirth just affect the woman? Does the turmoil that a woman goes through in childbirth, does it only affect the woman? Come on, man. Expect a little bit more hearty amen on that one. Does not the woman put the man through some things because of the turmoil that's going on in her body? Does it not hurt the man to see the woman in the pain and not being able to do anything about it? There's an <laughs> You be careful over there. When Jesus came onto this earth, there was something that would happen once he left. Once he died and he rose again, people that believe in Jesus are called something different. 
Jesus announced it. It's called the what? The new birth. And in fact, he has a conversation with Nicodemus. Unless you are born again. The word of God talks about all the earth laboring and travailing for the birth that is coming. The new kingdom, the new earth, the new system that will come. There is labor and there is travail that is there. If you have ever wondered why did Jesus have to suffer on the cross the way that he did, it's because God did not give himself a pass. And when Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross to bring the second birth. And so he labored in pain. Not as a woman labors in pain. But he labored in pain. And because of what he went through, because of what he suffered, we now have access to the new birth. What was the father doing all this time? Watching the son go through the pain. And what could he do about it? Nothing. If he wanted the new birth to come. Unless you are born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What happened with Eve, we talked about it a little bit before with the curse of the, on the serpent. What happened with Eve has everything to do with crushing the serpent's head. And the pain that, she, that you go through as a woman is part of what sin brought into this world. And Jesus didn't take a pass on it. He's not a woman. He didn't go through that kind of labor. But he brought about the new birth and he went through tremendous pain. And it even killed him. In order to bring this thing about. We're not done here. I didn't give you that blank. Every time we go through or see a birth, we are reminded of the pain suffered for our rebirth. To me, this shows you this pain is not from God. If it was from God, why in the world would God put it on Himself? It is a result of sin. If you look at 1 Timothy 2, 14 through 15, we're not going to go over there right now. You can go there and look at it later on, but it ties very much this whole process with Eve with the new birth. Genesis chapter 3, 16 again. To the woman, we're getting close to time. i got to rush on through here. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, your conception, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. How many like that last part? How many people will confess, I don't know what's going on there. I do not know what's going on. What does this mean? And if you listen to 12 preachers, you may get 12 different answers on what this thing means. So, I went through the Word of God. I wanted to find... If I'm going to get an opinion, my opinion stinks. I'm just... We're just, we're just people. We, our opinion makes no difference. I need to know what does the Word of God teach me. I want to know what does the Word of God teach me went on here. Now, if this so far as we're looking at, this is a result of sin. He is not pronouncing this on anyone. He is telling you this is the result of sin coming in. It is going to cause pain. It is going to cause sorrow, toil. It's going to cause these things. This is what's going to happen. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall reign over you. Your desire, this is used three times and it's used in two different ways. It means desire, longing, craving. That's the basic definition. One of them is the, 
you can call this book either Song of Songs, sometimes it's called that, or Song of Solomon. In chapter 7 and verse 10, we see this word used. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Now that makes it sound like a really good thing. My, uh, my man wants me. That's a good desire. Now of course that's an unscriptural relationship. Uh, they're not married. There's all kinds of bad things going on with that. But people will still preach like, uh, have you ever heard that Song of Solomon is the romance between the bride of Christ and uh, Jesus? Yeah, that is garbage. Get that stuff out of your head. That is horrendous. Solomon is married how many times over? And he goes over and he picks up another woman. And he starts wooing her while he's got these other wives. Does that sound like the church? My word, the things that we do sometimes. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. This is a real important scripture. I want you to get this one. If you do well, speaking... this, We were just in chapter 3, right? Towards the end of chapter 3, in, in verse 16... This is chapter 4. This is verse 7. Who wrote Genesis chapter 4? Moses. Who wrote Genesis chapter 3? Moses. You are only looking at a few verses that part between the curse of the woman and this verse. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Does that sound at all familiar? Wow! Does it ever sound familiar? That sounds exactly like the curse. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then you look at this one. Its desire is for you. This is sin. So what is he saying here? Well, if we are looking at the result of sin upon the woman, the result of sin upon the man, and we're, we're seeing that sin has a negative effect, I'm pretty sure that you can't go with the positive view. You have to go with the negative view, which we Genesis chapter 4. Now Moses wrote both of these. He didn't write the other one. So in his mind, He's, he's, when he writes this, you cannot write that. How many? Uh, not even a dozen verses later. You cannot write this and not have the, the previous verse in mind. The wording is just too close. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now, in order to understand what this means, I look around at the, at the world and I look at how things are going on. Because we're going to see the condition of husbands and wives and what's going on there, and we can understand this a whole lot better. Is the man supposed to rule over the over the woman? Of course, most people are going to say, "Oh, amen." We're not understanding this verse, and people don't understand this verse, and they come up with doctrines. It's scary. In Genesis chapter. 37, verse 8. Let's take a look at this word desire. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? Now that word there for reign, that we don't want you to reign over us. They were not happy about that. We're not talking about some kind of a gentle ruling. 45, Genesis 45, verse 8. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. That same word is used to describe him as a ruler over all the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 15, 6. For the Lord your God will bless you against, 
or just as He promised you, you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Doesn't sound like God wants them to reign over Him, over the, over the, the people. Judges 8, 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of the Midian. Of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. One more. You can do, we can look at a whole lot of them, but I'm just going to do one more. Judges 15:11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Atem and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? How did the Philistines rule over the children of Israel? Were they really kind and nice about it? No. How did Joseph rule over the the Egyptians, was he real kind and nice about it? You will give me one-fifth of everything that you made. Now, some people have looked at this, your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. Some people have looked at that three different ways they've looked at this. I've, I just, I've read all the things I could on this thing. One is that the woman's desire for the husband will be that the woman des- desires intimacy with the husband. And, uh, and and most women want more intimacy out of the uh, conversations and other things that are going on in the in the marriage than most of them are receiving. And so we could see, oh yeah, well that must be what it is. But again, we're looking at something that's sin corrupted. The second one was sex. Well, if you look around in marriages today, it seems like the longer people are married, the less of that's going on. That's not how God ordained it. God said that's what's going to draw you two together. You need to keep doing it. It's not dirty to God. It's what God put in the marriage. Or she could her desire could be for her husband, and I think this is more it, in that she desires to have the dominion over him that he demonstrates over her. Look at that again at our verse in Genesis. Chapter 4. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. You should have dominion over it. Now, if you fully understand what we're trying to get you to see in this, you will understand a whole lot better what Paul taught about marriage. Because Paul taught some things about marriage. I remember, uh, I wrote down the scripture. I'm not going to read it here right now. Ephesians chapter 5, 23 to 27. Paul taught about marriage. Wives, what are you supposed to do to your husbands? Everybody knows that word, right? Submit. We don't like it, but wives submit. Now, husbands love to quote that to wives. The Word of God did not tell the husband to quote that to the wife. The Word of God quoted that to the wife directly. To the husband, Paul says, husbands, rule over your wife. No, he said what? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. What he is trying to do here is to establish what marriage was supposed to be, what marriage intended, that sin corrupted. What happened is that sin got in, and there's now pain in the pregnancy that was never intended. It wasn't supposed to be there, but sin came in and brought that in. And then here's the other part. When sin comes in, wives, you're going to take that part of you that God put in you to be that guardian, and you are going to use it in a way to try and usurp your husband's authority. Well, I only do it because my husband doesn't take that authority. Don't care. That desire that a woman has to rule the household. How many have ever heard, 
Well, the woman rules this household. All right, sin rules in this household. Well, don't be so blunt. Got to. This stuff has been roaming around in there. Well, if I don't do these things, if I don't say these things, if I don't boss him around, he won't do nothing. Stop trying to take God's role in the marriage. Paul is laying it out here. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Christ loves the church in such a way he provides for everything that is needed. He gives his ability, his strength to the church so that they can accomplish what's needed to be done. Husbands, that's what you ought to be doing. Yeah, well, she doesn't submit. It doesn't matter if she submits or not. This is what it tells you to do. Paul is simply writing, this is how you get marriages back on track. Sin came in and corrupted it. And woman, that part in you that it feels perfectly fine telling your husband, you're fat, you shouldn't be eating this stuff. And you won't take it from him. That part in you that God created that is the guardian, who you have no problem talking about that and telling him, you can't eat that, you're going to die if you eat that. You're a guardian over there. You will speak these things. You can turn it into evil the same way that Eve did. And instead of guarding him from the temptation, led him into it. We'll see more of this as we get into the uh, the actual part where, where uh, God is, is speaking things. But as you can see, barely going to get through this. I want you to see the, the whole track of it. Women, the temptation, sin is going to try and get in. And it's going to try and get you to do the same thing that Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7 does. Sin's desire is for you. But you should reign over it. Men, I don't care how much of a nag you think your wife is. I don't care how much weaker, how insignificant, all those things that are welled up inside of you and you think you think about her. I don't care how much of that is there. She is a gift from God and you better start looking at her as a gift to God and treating her as a gift to God. But stop giving in to everything that she says she wants to do. Eve is the one who led Adam into the temptation. And when we look at that temptation, you're going to see some things that I bet you haven't seen before. But we'll spend some time on it and you'll see some of the things that went on. Why was Adam punished? What is it that Adam actually did? There's a lot of confusion that goes on about that. But... Women, you're, this is part of the curse. God, Jesus is telling you, sin is going to get in and it's going to try and make you into a nag. It's going to try and get you into a place where you think it's only me. No one else is doing anything right. I'm the only good thing in this family and i got to boss everybody around and tell everybody what to do and you are one of the reasons why the family is not working right. Amen, Pastor. Preach it. I think I will. Now, women, if you back off, I'm guarantee you, your husband isn't going to step in the role right away because he's been battered, he's been beaten, he's tired. But you need to do the role that you were called to do. And you need to take that part of God that put in you to be the guardian and stop using it to nag and get everybody to do what you want done and instead use it to influence and push people in the direction of God. You need to demonstrate patience, not demand it. You need to demonstrate love, not demand it. You need to demonstrate kindness, not demand it. You need to demonstrate respect, not demand it. That's what you need to do. 
let that woman of God that is in there come out. Because right now, in the church, I see, not this church, other churches in other states and other countries, <clears throat> far, far away. But they are do- the, the women are trying to be domineering. And the husband gives up. And he's not trying to rule anymore. He's been equipped to rule in that household for the purpose of keeping the garden free of threats. And if you undermine that, you are undermining the very source that will keep the threats out. You each have your role. The wife does not have a lesser role. Husband does not have a greater role. You each have a role and you have been equipped to do it. Too often, the woman is undermining the man because of the sin problem, because of what Jesus announced in the garden. This is what's coming. Now you make sure. Don't let that desire rule in you. You stay submitted. You use the force that God gave you. Because I'll tell you, women, you have got a powerful force with us men. How many ever, how many uh, know the history of the Spartan warriors? Anybody know about the Spartans, Spartan warriors? I love some of the things about the Spartan warriors. When the Spartan warriors would go off to war, the wife would come and hand them the shield and the sword. And the wife would say to each husband, to each person there, hand the, the shield and say, come back with your shield or come back on it. Ooh. That's what they would say. That empowered the man. You mean you're going to be okay if I come back dead? Yes. whole lot more. You come back surrendered. They did not want that. There's a whole lot of lifestyle that went on with them Spartan people. And Spartan women, they were tough. Oh man, they were tough. But so were the men. You have the ability to empower your man to get things done like no one else in his life. And if you cut that off to nagging, and then you cut that off to just doing things and saying what's going to make your life easier and what you want out of life, you have cut off the very source for that family and the reason the family is not in the order that it should be is first off because of you. Fix it. Do what is said to be done because sin has come in and it has corrupted us. All right, I know this is not one of those feel-good feel good uh, sermons and y'all want to go back and find one of those ones on Genesis chapter 3 16 that told you something different but I'd rather you have the truth and fix it up but I don't have a husband don't matter this same kind of thing is still working in you how many people have ever had a woman boss who was nothing but a nag uh huh yep that part can come out but you can also have a woman boss who empowers Women, be in a place where you can empower the people around you. Because you can not only empower your husband, you can empower your kids, you can empower your co-workers, you can empower your neighbors, you can empower the people at church, you can empower people that are all around you. You have the ability inside to take what God put in you to be a guardian, to be, to be the helpmate, which is guardian. Because every time that word is used, we went through, remember, went through the 21 times it's used, we went through 18 of them, show you, it was always used with defense with deliverance that's what you are equipped to do men if you don't allow your your wife if you don't allow the women in your life 
to, to stir up that aspect of you, you will not be nearly as well defended. We used the example before when we were going over this. Remember Rocky in the, uh, in the room with his wife? And his wife wakes up from the coma and what'd she say to him? Win! And then of course the, the coach, I love his voice, what are we waiting for? And they all go out there and they, they, they start training. And they start getting, why? Because the woman empowered him. He was held back because of her. But when she said that, he was empowered. You have the ability to empower greater than you know. But you also have the ability to suck the life out of them too. It's your choice what you're going to do. Would you all stand up with me? Oh, I missed up a few things you didn't give you. I'll give them to you real quick. Sin disrupted God's plan. But through what Jesus has provided, we can restore it, at least partially. He has provided His blood for redemption, His body for healing, and His name for authority and dominion. He has provided these things for us there. The serpent gave voice to the devil's plan. The woman gave action to the devil's plan. But it is the man who gave submission to the devil's plan. We have more to look at with, with the man there. You may still have some questions on this. I love questions. Go ahead and feel free to, to ask any of them that you want to. But it's important that we understand that because we've been given such a wrong role of our roles in life. And we're going to get on the men too. Men, I want you to better understand your role in life and operate in it and work it. When you operate in the role that you, that you are supposed to do. Uh, I'll give you this part, this much of it uh, right off the bat. Men, how many of you think that you having to go to work is part of the curse? Can't wait to get out of this curse. I won't have to work anymore. That is wrong. You have always been made to work. Before the curse, the way God said, tell Adam about the garden. Tend and keep it. That's work. Work is not part of the curse or something else. Far more important to understand and to know that that is not part of the curse. You are going to work when heaven gets here. You are still going to work, but you're going to love it. We'll spend some more time on that. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the role that women have in this world. And I thank you for the role that women have in our lives. We as men can draw from the strength that you had given them to help us. Father, there's a role that we have for them too that gives them strength. And when we each do our role, there is no room for the enemy. But when we each allow that role to be corrupted and become something that God never intended it to be, but sin keeps pressuring it to become, our marriages are weakened, our children are weakened, our houses, our families are weakened, our jobs, our businesses are weakened because we're not taking advantage of the things that you've given us. But I thank you for the strength that is here for us to draw from in others and also in us. We give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.